I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. Happy Mary Eid Mubarak. Against better judgment, I bought an old British fishing boat. So it takes a, a hard right. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was still in the food truck. Yeah, right? exactly. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. We have lots of lifelong readers here at CBC Books. Some of us even remember beloved reads from childhood that made us lifelong readers. For me, it was Judy Bloom. My CBC Books colleague Bridget Raimundo fell in love with reading when she was young, too. And she's kept that childhood love alive during the years she worked as a children's bookseller. Bridget, a.k.a. Bridge Likes Books, joins our regular panelist B. Kwame in half an hour to recommend some kids' titles for holiday reading. B is a mom, a writer, and when it comes to picking titles, she has a reliable backup team of two little girls who add their expert opinions. And the acclaimed and beloved Quebec children's writer and illustrator Marie-Louise Gay answers the Proust questionnaire. But first, snowy love and romance in three holidays and a wedding. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. Uzma Jalaluddin remembers being very surprised when Marissa Stapley called to ask if she wanted to collaborate on a novel. An author's job is pretty solitary, so for both writers, the chance to work on a shared project was a welcome change. It helped that the concept was so much fun, a joyful holiday rom-com. And here's the rundown. Bring together three faiths in a small snow-covered town and cue the romance. The novel is called Three Holidays and a Wedding, and I'm joined now by its co-writers, Uzma Jalaluddin and Marissa Stapley. Hello to both of you. Welcome to the next chapter. Hi. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Uh, Uzma, I read in the author notes for the book that this grew out of an idea that you had. So, so take us back to the original idea. Sure. Actually, the idea didn't really progress beyond, uh, I guess, in film terms, it's called a logline. And Mm. essentially, I'm I'm a big fan of holiday rom-coms, as many people are, uh, especially when the days get shorter and the nights are longer. You just want to settle in with a with a nice cozy movie. And I but I always notice that, of course, all of these movies are about Christmas. And uh, as someone who's never celebrated Christmas, I'm Muslim. I I really wondered what it would be like to have a, a holiday movie about that was a bit more inclusive. And so I had this idea of setting it in the year 2000 when Ramadan, Christmas, and Hanukkah all happened at the same time, which really did occur in December 2000. And I even had a title. It was going to be called Happy Merry Eid Mubarak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I floated the idea to Marissa, uh, she really liked it too. I'm a big fan immediately. We used to do a comedy show, myself and a few Jewish comedians, Muslim communities, kosher jokes for the halala days. And so I'm already, <laughs> I was, yeah, I'm on board with all of that. Uh, Marissa, I know you've collaborated on a novel before with Karma Brown, who was actually on this show yeah. in this very chair that you're sitting in. <laughs> uh, how did you and Uzma come together for this novel? 
So as Usma mentioned, she had this idea, which was more of a screenplay idea. And we had discussed that because we both have had various options on our books and are very interested in that world and potentially someday writing a screenplay. So she mentioned this to me and I I could see it in my head and I was like, oh, and there's a snowstorm and everyone's Hmm. stuck in an airport or and all this stuff. And I thought about it a little bit in terms of a screenplay. And then I just kept coming back to the idea of turning it into a book. And I wanted to do another collaboration. And so that's when the surprise call came and I said, hey, you have some time to chat. And and then I kind of soft pitched it to her. And at the end of the conversation, she said, wait a minute, are you asking me to write a book with you? And I was <laughs> like, oh, yes, that is what I'm asking. And uh, I'm so glad she said yes, because we had such a wonderful time writing the novel. We've had such a wonderful time talking about it. And uh, it seems to be giving people the kind of joy it gave us, which mm. at this time of year is exactly what you want. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uzma, there's two main characters in the novel. There's Mariam and there's Anna, and I'm taking a wild guess here, but uh, could there be bits of you in Mariam? And if that's the case, what do you and she share in, in common? So Mariam Aziz is the eldest daughter in an immigrant South Asian family like me. Uh, her family is from Hyderabad, India. Uh, I am also the eldest daughter in an immigrant South Asian family. And so one of the things that I kept thinking about when I was writing Mariam's story uh, was that sense of responsibility, that sense of wanting to make sure that everyone is okay and putting maybe your own dreams and hopes and, and ideas on the back burner while you're taking care of everyone. And I was really inspired by the Disney movie Encanto. There's a character named Louisa, particularly a, a song called Surface Pressure, and which is all about sort of the pressure that in, that the eldest daughter faces. And it, it was very, you know, similar to conversations that were happening. And I thought, I'm going to tap into that while I write this story. Mm. And Marissa, the other uh, protagonist, is Anna. Mm-hmm. She comes from a multi-faith family. She celebrated both Christmas and Hanukkah growing up. Uh, and she loves the Maple Leafs. Where do you and Anna intersect? So all of those things. So I, I grew up in a multi-faith home. My stepmother was Jewish. My stepdad is a United Church minister. And we, we celebrated everything. And as I got older, I really did start to miss that. And actually, it's one of the great things about this book is it's brought that back into my life. And we've we've started to, to bring those celebrations into our family again and teach the kids. Um, the Maple Leafs actually are the very reason that I met my husband. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't say that I love them, but I think that they did do very well that one year. So we happened to meet watching a playoffs game, and I put oh, the, nice. the jokes about the Maple Leafs in to kind of tease my husband a little because um, he, he's still a diehard fan. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, Judaism and Christianity so much more easy to believe in than the Maple Leafs, uh, it feels like sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely correct. Yeah. Uh, so tell me this, Uzma, that the story takes place over a holiday uh, when, when Christmas, Hanukkah, and Ramadan landed very close together on the calendar. How often does that happen? So uh, the Muslim Muslim calendar, the Islamic calendar, is actually 11 days shorter than the regular Gregorian calendar. So this is a very rare occurrence. It happens around every three decades, about every 33 or so years. So it happened in the year 2000. Probably in another 10 years, it'll, it will happen again. Uh, and I think it's, uh, you know, having been a young adult at the time, it was a really special moment. I, I remember it. All of my friends remember it because it really felt like if you don't celebrate Christmas, um, you, you know, you're from an, an you're, you're part of another faith. You, you're sort of included all of a sudden in the holiday season. The the lights seem to sparkle a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to share that moment with my children in another ten years. Yeah, it's good that you mention the shorter Islamic calendar because sometimes 
the fasting of the month of Ramadan can be in July. That's right. Or it can be in February, which is really quite the walk in the park. Yes, and That's yes. when I show up. That's <laughs> when I'm a bit more I've experienced both listening. fasting in July and fasting in December. I yeah. prefer December. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Marissa, our, our two leading ladies are flying from Denver to Toronto for the holidays. So Miriam's going for her sister's wedding, and Anna is going to meet up with her uh, oh-so-posh uh, boyfriend's parents. But bad weather grounds them in this town of Snow Falls. So tell me about that that town. I mean, you know, originally there's a place called Smith Falls, which is close to Ottawa. They were supposed to be going to Ottawa. They got diverted. But I found out this is not a substitute for Smith Falls. What is it? What's no, the inspiration for this town? We kind of had Almonte in mind, which is outside of Ottawa, which is a place um, that we actually read in the New York Times last year is the set for many holiday rom-coms we've all seen. Um, and actually, being a writer of holiday rom-coms became really obsessed about that. And so I thought this would be perfect, but we also knew that we needed to change it to make it reflect the multicultural, multi-faith world we were creating here. So we thought of the GTA and the suburbs, and we we talk about how we created a town we would want to live in and, and the world we wanted to live in. So it <sighs> exists and it doesn't, and we wish that it did. I, yeah, so a small town but with three Hakka Chinese restaurants. Yes. That's, yeah. I mean, this is the stuff of wonderful fantasies. It's the, one, it's the <laughs> so stuff true. of dreams, right? <laughs> Uzma, Miriam and her extended family are fasting for Ramadan, as we mentioned, when they, when they land in Snowfall. So how do they make that work in this sparkly holiday town of Snowfall? Yeah, that was, that, that was a big challenge for Miriam and her family because, uh, um, as you know, when you're fasting, you have to wake up very early uh, before the sun eat a big meal, and then basically you refrain from uh, food and drink for the, for the daylight hours, and then you break your fast in the evening. So when Mariam and her family first arrived, they don't know how, you know, they're staying in a, at an inn. They don't know if they can get food at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, their first night, they kind of do this scavenger type of meal where they uh, go to the vending machine and have candy bars, which is really what you should not do if you're going to fast for 14 hours. Uh, but then the inn owners, who aren't Muslim, are so gracious the very next day they, they they make accommodations and and I think that's really one of the beautiful things about this book is the way that all of the characters uh, compassionately uh, empathetically think about each other and make allowances and accommodations for each other and so Mariam and her family not only fast but they even find a small mosque in the town uh, and they they go for the evening prayers as well you uh, thank your parents in the acknowledgments which is which is a fairly common thing but you thank them for teaching you how to fast. Tell me what fasting means to you. You know, I, I started fasting very young, as most people do. Um, most Muslims, when they learn to fast, they, they, they start maybe around seven, which I know seems quite shocking, but it, it's gradually in stages. So you'll fast until lunchtime or you'll yeah, fast for day. an entire day. Uh, you won't fast for the entire month until you're, yeah, I, I think I was into my teens when I was fasting the entire month. And for me, fasting is, I was telling this to, to Marissa when we were discussing it, it to me, it, it, it's an act of empathy. It's, it's a radical act of compassion because you're really putting yourself in a situation that for most Canadians, we, we don't experience, which is that of being in a state of hunger and not allowing yourself to eat or drink anything. And let me tell you, if you haven't experienced it, it's quite challenging. Mm. Well, Marissa, let me ask you, have you ever fasted for any reason? Was this something, uh, this a, a new world to you to, to write about and learn about? 
So I did uh, fast for one day while we were writing the novel. It was last year. It was April, so not a walk in the park. And mm. also I was quite shocked to learn that dawn is not sunrise and <laughs> happens full hour oh, before. Yeah. And I have to say that I, I wasn't sure what I was getting into. And Uzma had offered to kind of walk me through it. And, and we both thought it would be a good idea to, to write this book authentically. Even though I wasn't writing her chapters, we were both in each other's chapters. And that sort of radical act of empathy and compassion... Um, it, it happened even after one day. It was about 8 p.m. I had ordered enough Hakka Chinese food for my entire neighborhood, mm-hmm. and I knew it would be arriving, and I was setting the table because my family was waiting to eat with me and, and break the fast with me, and I was hungry, and we aren't hungry often, and I couldn't remember the last time I was hungry, and I knew I in that moment as I set my table and I knew there would be food, I thought, but there are people who don't know if food is coming, and I, I still get almost tearful thinking about it. I mean, it... it, it um, inspired uh, a different way of charitable giving in me. And, and even that one day changed my life a little bit. That's very beautiful. What Were there other uh, Muslim traditions that you uh, learned about when you were writing this book? Um, I mean, I think a lot about the food. And also, <laughs> I, I will never forget our lunch party when Osma uh, brought the most incredible chai from a place in Scarborough. I'm not sure what it was called. Shout out to Hyderabad Palace in Scarborough. They make the best chai. Absolutely incredible. I think about it all the time. It also gave me this incredible surge of energy, and I'd like to get it when I'm <laughs> editing and writing books. Very strong. <laughs> Very strong. Uh, so, Uzma, a little bit more about Miriam. Uh, the, your character is a pharmacist. She feels stuck in life. And in fact, her, her, her more freewheeling sister even calls her Boreum instead of Mariam to suggest how boring she is. And Mariam's secret wishes to be a writer, which is something she feels she won't, she won't be able to do with the acceptance of her parents. So, so tell us about your path to being a writer. Well, like uh, a lot of children of immigrants, uh, my parents immigrated from India. Uh, I was basically expected to uh, take a more traditional path in terms of career. I, I remember being a teenager, and I, I, I've always been a bookworm. I've always been the kind of kid who, you know, has a library card and proudly wields it. Uh, and I remember telling my father, you know, I was thinking about becoming a writer, and and he gave me some advice which makes me laugh. Now he said, uh, writing is a good hobby. Uh, make sure you get a day job. Mm-hmm. And and looking back on it, it wasn't bad advice because writing is the kind of thing that you sort of grow into. You have to sort of experience life in order to really get a chance, uh, have the ability to, to write about different things. And so I, I took his advice. I'm a high school teacher. I've been working in uh, public schools in the GTA for almost 20 years now. And it's been it's been wonderful. But like Mariam, I also have this creative side of me, which I didn't fully explore until I was much older. Do your high school students read your books? Some of them do. <laughs> and it's really cute. Uh, most of them are completely indifferent to mm. me as a writer, which is very refreshing and keeps me very grounded. That's great. Uh, Marissa, so this juxtaposition was interesting because whereas Miriam comes from this large family who was actually with her all the time in real time in the book, um, Anna has lost both of her parents. She feels herself to be alone in the world at times. Uh, What did you want to say about the nature of of family in, in her story? 
So I do come from a big family and a blended family and and I have, you know, chosen family. My life is so full. So it was very interesting for me to to drill down and write a character who was more of a lone wolf. And I think what I really wanted to explore was that idea that you can I mean, I have my family, I choose my family, but I have friends who feel like family as well. And I know there are people who really need that. They need to to open themselves up to chosen family. And I think that was really what I wanted to explore with Anna, that you you can have a smaller circle and still have a very full emotional and familial life. And I think that's why the, the relationship with Mariam became such a big part of the story. And almost, we talk about it as almost as big as the romances, that, that mm. friendship. And, and we see it as enduring, like Anna and Mariam are hanging out right now. Yeah. One of the greatest connectors of human beings, in, in my opinion, has always been food. And mm. you Gave a shout out to the chai, and you talked about the Hakka Chinese mm-hmm. after your, your your day of fasting. But the book has a lot of, you know, shout outs to food as well. So I wanted to ask, you know, especially the traditional foods um, to break a Ramadan fast. Can you talk about those? Yeah, definitely. And and for a month where you're kind of staying away from food, food almost becomes a preoccupation for a lot of fasting Muslims. Mm. And uh, depending on what part of the diaspora you're from, the cuisine will differ. So my parents, as I said, are immigrants from India. So we would always break our fast with a lot of fried things. So fried samosas, uh, fried pakoras. Uh, in my family now, we, we try to be healthy a, a little bit. So we also make fruit salad. Um, Drinks are really important because it's important to hydrate. So one of the fun drinks, uh, I I kind of call this uh, Indian boba, (laughs) Indian Mm. bubble tea. It's basically called faluda, which is uh, uh, milk mixed with rose uh, syrup and uh, basil seeds. And then you top it, of course, with uh, some vermicelli and ice cream. I like the of course there because I mean, <laughs> of course, why, why wouldn't a, you? I, hello, I would like to try this. <laughs> it's delicious. Your time it's is delicious. coming. If you like rose syrup. I do. Marissa, Christmas is coming. Hanukkah just ended. What are your plans? Does it involve a plane? <laughs> Actually, no. I just returned from an incredible pre-Christmas trip to Iceland where they've already got full Christmas carols and lights, and I, I love it. I felt like I was on a rom-com set the whole time. But we have already been into the Christmas and multi-faith holiday spirit. We've had a, a Hanukkah gathering, and I tried my hand at latkes, which are my holiday Hanukkah food obsession. Um, and we did not get on any planes. I am actually planning to spend most of Christmas up at my cottage in Halliburton. And uh, I'm just looking forward to some cozy family time with my family and my cat after a busy time promoting this wonderful book. Uzma, there's a Rumi quote at the opening of the book. I wonder if you can read it and talk about why you chose that. Yeah, the quote is, the sun's light looks a little different on this wall than it does on that wall, and a lot different on this other one, but it's still one light. So this quote, um, Marissa found, actually, and when she uh, when she put it in our in our Google Doc, it's the you know the, the quotation or the I guess it's called an epigraph. Yeah, at the start of the book, I thought this is so perfect. Um, I love Rumi, and of course Jalaluddin Rumi is a, a Persian mystic poet. He was Muslim, and he was a Jalaluddin, and he was a Jalaluddin. <laughs> no relation, no, though. I would love to claim that. Yeah, that's his first name. Uh, and you know, it's it's basically talking about how all of these three faiths, uh, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, we 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 share so many things in common. Uh, and one of the things that we share is our faith in humanity, our 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 love and joy in humanity, and that's really what we're trying to capture with this uh, with this book. 
Thank you so much for coming in to talk about it. I will say to people who have this guilty pleasure of watching holiday movies, this is all of that minus the screen time. It's an escape without the actual escape, but it's a little bit of a, a rest for your eyes and, a, and, yeah, a great little journey to go on during the holidays. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you so much. That was Uzma Jalaluddin and Marissa Stapley, co-writers of Three Holidays and a Wedding. Hey, this is Matt Lazell from the Vancouver Roots Rock Band, The Matinee. And apart from being a singer, songwriter, a literacy mentor, and a dog dad, I'm also an aspiring mariner. And I'm reading The Curve of Time by M. Wiley Blanchette. This book is more or less a multi-year journal by a woman whose husband had tragically gone missing while on board his boat. And he left her widowed with five kids and a dog and the boat, but rather than sell the boat, she decided she would learn how to operate it and take her kids and the dog each summer for months at a time, traveling from their home in Victoria all the way up the coast and into Desolation Sound. So it's a nonfiction account of these adventures she would take her family on each summer. She was the ultimate West Coast frontierswoman. Having grown up on the West Coast, I've always been around the water. And a few years ago during the pandemic was touring on hold for the band. I guess I needed something to keep me busy and to keep my spirit going. So against better judgment, I bought an old British fishing boat. And I've always been captivated by stories of shipwrecks and rum runners and explorers. And of course, the rich First Nations history along the shores here in BC. Along the way, they explore some of the ancient indigenous villages. So her depictions of the First Nations peoples and their culture can sometimes be crude and ill-informed. Um, so there's some important lessons and reminders here of how the Western world has disregarded and disrespected so much of their cultural history and importance. And it's important to note that this all took place in the 20s and 30s, long before GPS. There's no phones, definitely fewer people out there on the water. Um, so she really confidently wheels her family into these adventures, navigating by charts and maps and legends. And I think anybody who um, has that appreciation for, for adventure and travel and growth will appreciate this book. I'm C.S. Richardson, the author of All the Color in the World. A book I love to read is Silk by Alessandro Barrico. Silk tells the story of a Frenchman who travels to Japan to save the silk industry in his small village in France. So he travels to 19th century Japan at that point, which is closed to Westerners. And through a number of adventures discovers himself, discovers a love, re recalls the love of his life who is waiting back in France, and saves the, the silk industry. It's a very short book. Uh, it's the book that taught me that I could write a book, and I reread it on a regular basis. ¶¶ 
We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gary Barwin, the author of Imagining Imagining, and you're listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1. There's a long tradition on this program of recommending holiday reading for children, and far be it for me to break with tradition. So today, I'm joined by two lovers of kids' books, both of whom have had lots of hands-on experience figuring out what children like to read. And they are writer, broadcaster, and mom B. Kwame, and CBC Books associate producer and former children's bookseller Bridget Raimundo. Hello to you both. Welcome to the next chapter. Hi. So, Bridget, this is your first time on this panel, but yes. you've been here talking about Bridge Likes Books, your, your TikTok <laughs> life before. But today, tell me about your life as a kid's bookseller. Where and when did that take place? Yeah, I feel like all realms of my life have just been kids' books in some way because that's the TikTok scene. It's all the kids. Um, but I started as a children's bookseller in 2017, and, I, you know, I just always had a love for it. I love young adult. That's kind of where my love of reading started. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say they grow out of it. I never grew out of it. <laughs> I continued to read YA well into my adult years. And even more so, I'm just in, I love picture books and the stories that you get to tell through them, the way that you can connect with kids as a bookseller. That's like the most meaningful thing is being able to see kids become readers and fall in love with reading. Yeah, tell me about that. What did you learn about kids' tastes in, 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 in books and the kind of books that work best when you were doing that? Yeah, well, they're very honest. They will <laughs> yes. tell you point blank if they don't like a book. And that was the joy of children's book selling is you're not selling. It doesn't feel like selling. You're having a conversation with a little kid about what they like. And they're like, do you like dinosaurs? And they're like, no. Do you like princesses? No. And so they will tell you point blank if they don't want to read something. And I find that a lot of kids, especially the little ones, aren't looking for things that are really didactic. Uh, these days, they're looking for things that are silly, things that maybe have a little bit of a moral message sprinkled in there, but they are more enchanted by like the vibrancy and the funny jokes and the rhyming mm. schemes. B, tell me about things in your house. You know, most parents have a <laughs> war against screens going on. It can right. be a huge distraction, uh, not only for kids, but also for, exactly. for parents, obviously. Exactly. But how do you deal with your two daughters on that front and making time yeah. for, for reading that's not necessarily on screen? Well, I think the lucky thing for me is my daughters both love to read. Mm. So it's really not hard to kind of pull them off of the screen. Now, I will say they do have book apps on their tablets. So sometimes that's the concession they try to make. They're like, but mommy, I'm reading, I'm reading. I'm like, still, girl, mm. give your eyes a break off the electronics. Yeah. Let's open up a book. Let's smell the pages. Let's look at the pictures. But they both love to read. And they're really in a phase now. They're nine and six. And they actually take pride in building their bookcase now. So okay. I've got my own bookcase. They've got their own bookcase. Mm -hmm. 
they love when I come on the show because that's more books for them to add to their bookcase, right? right? But they love to get lost in these worlds. Like as you were saying, Mm -hmm. Bridget, about kids who want some of that magic and just some of that vibrancy. I've seen that phase with my older one and I Mm -hmm. see my younger one in that now. But where my older one is going is really interesting because she's really broadening out her, her world in terms of being interested in fantasy, but also interested in things that are about culture and identity. And so I'm starting to learn more about who they are based on what their interests are when it comes to reading. So it's a, it's a really cool experiment, but as long as they got some books in their hand, I'm good. So That's very nice. All right. Well, Bridget, tell us, what is your first recommended book today? Yes. So on the theme of fun, my first book is an adorable and animated middle grade graphic novel called Mabuhai. I have to say it with an exclamation point because it has. <laughs> an exclamation point, mm. um, which is basically just a, a lovely warm greeting in Tagalog. Um, and so this is a Filipino-American graphic novel. It's about these two kids, Altea and JJ, who are in middle school, and they work at their parents' uh, food truck called The Beautiful Pig. And they're kind of navigating their world in middle school. They have to deal with a lot of like microaggressive comments there, uh, which isn't as fun, but they have each other, and they have their family. And all of a sudden, things start to go a bit into the realm of fantasy and mystical. Mm. There's a cyclops that shows up at their school, and then these three witches. So it takes a a hard right. Uh, (laughs) I was was still in the food truck. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And they discover that their mom, who is a phenomenal chef, also has, like, magical powers that she's been harboring from them for years. Mm. Um, And they essentially have to go on this big family fun adventure quest where they discover their own powers in themselves. There's also a lot of food, like you said, and a glossary of terms for the food. There's also a recipe for chicken adobo at the Mm. back of the book. Um, So it's just a really uh, wonderful representation to see. I've never, I I think this is the book that I would have loved to have when I was in middle school as well. So that's interesting because I wanted to ask you too, as a kid, Mm -hmm. were you introduced to or exposed to Filipino folklore? Was that uh, something that was in your house? I mean, not so much. So this is something like I learned about later in life. And there's a whole world, like as much as people talk about Greek mythology and Roman mythology, there's this whole really wonderful world of Filipino mythology that hasn't been, um, I think, accessed as much in mainstream fiction. And then this one as well, being in a graphic novel setting, you get to really see those creatures um, and see the food too, which made me hungry. (laughs) B, what is your first pick of the day? So my first pick is going to be kind of complimentary to yours, I think, Bridget. So mine is called Julie and the Mango Tree. It's a picture book by Sade Smith and illustrated by Sayada Ramdial. And again, it centers food. We're talking about mangoes, right? (laughs) So Julie is a little girl that lives in Jamaica. Mangoes are her favorite fruit. I can identify. That is exactly the same for me. And she's lucky enough to have a big mango tree in her yard. So The only way for her to get mangoes, unless her dad is able to climb up and get them, is to wait for them to drop. And then she can pick them up out the yard. So one sticky summer afternoon, she goes out and she sits and she waits for a mango to drop. No mango drops. She asks the tree kindly if she can have a mango. There's no response. She goes back and she offers a trade to the tree. She's like, I'll give you four June plums, which is another delicious fruit in exchange for a mango, no dice. She makes up a song begging for a mango, Mm -hmm. no dice. So she goes to bed and that night there's a storm. When she wakes up in the morning, 
mangoes are everywhere. So you would think that's the end of the story, right? She exhibited her patience. She tried to be creative, find her way to get her mango. And it was like, all you have to do is wait and you get your mango. But that's not the end of the story because now she's got tons of mangoes. And at first she's so delighted that she just starts eating as many as she can. Then she gets a stomach ache. Then she's trying to figure out what can I do with all these mangoes? So in addition to the, you know, initial lesson of patience, which I'm like, my kids need to read this one because we got to talk about that. You also have lessons around uh, creativity, around community, around sharing. I think it's a really great story in that kids will get that lesson kind of seeped in while they're thinking about mangoes and how delicious mangoes are and looking at the beautiful illustrations. But in addition to, like you were mentioning with your book, having recipes at the mm -hmm. in, in the book, this one has recipes at the end as well. Amazing. So you get recipes for mango smoothies, mango juice, and mango salad. So it's a nice book where you could sit with your kid, read it, they get some life lessons, and then if you've got some mangoes at home, you can go and, and take, you know, it into action and, and do something more with it. It feels like there's a Forrest Gump vibe in there. You can do mango pickle. <laughs> you can do mango creme brulee. You can hey, do... mangoes are versatile. <laughs> very versatile. They are versatile, so it's all good. Um, Bridget, what's the next book on your list? Yeah. Um, so one of the th cool things I get to experience now as an adult reading teen books is kind of seeing my own high school experience represented. So the next book um, I'm going to talk about is a young adult book called Something More by Jackie uh, Kalalie. She's a Palestinian-Canadian debut author, and this is just a very earnest and heartwarming portrayal of what it means to be 15 and living in Ontario. Um, it's, it starts off with Jessie, who is the youngest sibling to this family, um, and before she starts high school, she is uh, diagnosed with autism, and so she's already nervous about what it means to start high school, and then she has this diagnosis, and she doesn't really know how to reconcile with that. Um, so she makes a list of goals for herself, and she writes them down, and she's very judicious about, like, crossing them out. And she's just navigating this world for herself in a very different way to her peers, and she's very cognizant of that. Um, but at the heart of the story is just a, a young girl who has a crush, mm -hmm. um, who knows that she has crushes often, but she feels like this one is going to be different. I will warn for any parents reading, she has a love for 90s music and 90s culture, and she refers to it as if it's an ancient thing oh, a lot, gosh. which is, you know, <laughs> is, I think, a bit difficult, but it just shows uh, you know, the breadth of what it means to be a teen. And yeah, so it's a really fun story. B, tell us about the second book in your recommendation yes, list. Yes, my second pick is called Catfish Rolling by Clara Kumagai. And this is Clara's debut book. It's a young adult novel. And it's a really amazing story that weaves magic realism with Japanese myth and legend. So Clara is uh, the author. She's Japanese-Canadian. And you see how she's kind of imbued that in the story uh, where we meet the main character. Her name is Sora. And Sora lives in Japan and she has lost her mother. The legend that is, it exists in the area where she lives is that there's a huge catfish that lives under the islands of Japan. And every once in a while, this catfish starts to roll under the water. And that's where earthquakes come from. So Sora blames the catfish underneath the water for the earthquake that caused her house to be destroyed. And it took her mom. So she's just left with her father. Her father is a scientist and he studies these kind of liminal spaces, these zones where time either moves faster or slower than normal. And Sora is incredibly helpful to him because 
she has some really special sensitivity to this movement of time. So she'll walk into a place and she'll be like, oh, time is faster here or time is slower here. And that brings up different memories for her. And throughout this uh, exploration of these zones with her father, she's thinking a lot more about her mom. So the book touches on a lot of grief. It touches Mm. on um, themes around memory, around culture. And as they are studying these spaces across Japan, her dad actually gets lost in one of these liminal spaces. And it's up to her. She's the one who kind of has to take the challenge head on to try to rescue her mother, rescue her father, and meet this catfish that causes all of these problems in her life. Mm. What I love about this book is it's, you know, it's from Sora's perspective. So it takes you into her world immediately. You're seeing everything through her eyes. And the book is extremely descriptive and beautiful. It's really lovely how it brings in that kind of that history and that culture, but brings it in a modern way. And I don't know if anybody listening has been to Japan. I went some years ago. And this book made me feel like I was there again, just because I remember being there. And it was like, you would see a temple that is like thousands of years old. And you know, a few steps away, there's a Chanel store, yeah. right? Mm. And it's like the history and the modern times are right here in coexistence. And that book really brings that to life. I will say I'm relieved to hear that it's not about catfishing. Uh, <laughs> catfish <laughs> exactly. rolling. We don't need that. We don't need no, that. No. <laughs> uh, but, in, 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 you know, what, you're, what you've just described, it sounds like a very so- sophisticated and thoughtful novel. Yes. What age group? Would this be for? I would say probably older teens. Yeah, yeah. Definitely like a young adult, older teen. Okay. Bridget, what's choice number three for you? Yeah, we're really on par with themes here. I also have a magical realist novel. Um, This is one of my favorite novels of all time. It's called Pet by Akweke Emeze. And this takes place in a utopian future um, in a place called Lucille, where monsters are thought to have been eradicated forever. Um, and we follow our main character, Jam, who's also like, it's from her perspective and it's very introspective that way. Um, and she is just a normal girl who's a little bit scared of monsters, a little bit fearful they might come back. Um, one night she stows away into her mother's art studio and accidentally brings about this giant kind of angelic but quite scary creature uh, who comes forth and tells her that there is a monster back in Lucille and needs her help to go and find them. And what I really love about Akweke's writing in general is kind of what you were talking about, B, where um, authors can recognize the emotional intelligence of their young readers. This book doesn't shy away from hard topics. Um, so what essentially like is metaphored in this novel is abuse, but it wouldn't look like that from the outside. It's very accessible for a young adult reader, I would say probably also mm-hmm. a, an older young adult reader. But Jam is very protective of her friend Redemption. They have great names in this mm-hmm. story as well. Um, and it's a monster hunt book at the end of the day. But Akweke really has such a poetic and beautiful language to their writing. It's short, it's condensed, and it deals with some really heavy topics in a really beautiful way that allows for levity and allows for fun. All right, B, let's go to you for your third book. Yes, third book. Now, this is one that my nine-year-old can read. This <laughs> is called Alice Flex Recipes for Disaster by Rochelle Delaney. And it's a really fun middle-grade novel. So we meet Alice Fleck, and her secret hobby 
None of her friends know, none of her classmates know, but what she loves to do is to recreate meals from the past with her dad, who is like a culinary expert. So she knows that her friends would think it was really weird if she talked about cooking Victorian meals and venison and all these things, Mm. so she doesn't tell anybody that that is her like number one hobby. But one day, Alice's dad's girlfriend signs them up for a cooking competition at like this Victorian festival that takes place in their town. Alice has this moment of panic where it's like, oh my goodness, people in town are gonna see me doing this with my dad. But the dad is super excited, so they go for it. Turns out it's not actually a cooking competition at a festival, it's a way to get them into a cooking show. So it was the trick to bring them in as contestants on a show called Culinary Combat a reality TV show who's hosted by like the Ryan Seacrest of culinary stuff, I guess. Mm -hmm. So it's a big deal. Now they're going to be on TV. You know, if you weren't at the festival to see her cooking, now you're going to see her on TV. So Alice is really losing it. Right. And she has to navigate the emotions of loving to do this thing because there is a part of her that's really excited to do this because Mm -hmm. she loves to cook. She loves to spend this time with her dad. But it's like, how does she temper that now with her friends finding out that that's what she likes Mm -hmm. to do? My daughter, actually, when I brought it home, she was like, oh, my goodness, I was going to buy that one at the book fair, but then you didn't give me enough money, so I couldn't buy two (laughs) books. And I was like, got it. Okay, (laughs) well, we have it here at home now. Um, And she's been in it like since I brought it home Mm. and I'll just hear her in her room cackling. Oh yeah. She's in there cackling and I'm like, back to the tablet thing. I'm like, girl, you on YouTube? Like, and she's like, no, no, no. She's like, I'm reading the book. It's so funny. So she loves to cook. So she identifies with Alice on that and she can understand a lot of how Alice feels with thinking things about her are weird and wondering how her friends are going to manage and maybe realizing your friends won't think you're that weird. And then you're going to meet new friends who like to do the thing you like to do, too. So there's a way that we can look at our gifts bringing us to the people who can share them with us. I mean, it's got food. It's got mystery. It's got friendships. It's got, you know, insecurity and confidence and all those good things that I think those that age group can identify with. Started with food, ending with food. Right. Yeah, this is a theme here theme. with food. <laughs> but we do have a few minutes uh, left. We can do a, what we call a short snap around yeah, here. Bridget, first to you, what have you got? There's more food. So <laughs> my last pick is an absolutely adorable book that I have to show you, uh, Benny the Bananasaurus Rex. Um, and it. this is a book from Inhabit Press um, by author Sarah Beth Holden and illustrated by Emma Pedersen. Uh, this is an Inuit author and it's an Inuit story. And it's basically about this, what might look like a little boy named Benny. He's not a little boy. He's actually a giant, ferocious Tyrannosaurus Rex. Mm. Um, And all he cares about and wants to do all day is eat bananas. And his anana, which is his mom, warns him that he could turn into a banana if he doesn't stop eating all of the bananas all the time. And guess what? Spoiler alert. He does. But he turns into a Bananasaurus Rex. And yeah, I th- it's just a really cute and wonderfully illustrated story. The cover is very inviting it's and so very cute. hilarious mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. All right. B, let's go to you for the last yes, pick of the day. What is your last, short snapper? Yes, my short snapper is, again, kind of related to food. <laughs> it's called The Three Canadian Pigs, A Hockey Story by Jocelyn Watkinson and illustrated by Marcus Cutler. And it's an amazing picture book. It's so fun. I'm not really a hockey fan. Sorry to people out there. But this book just made me feel like, okay, this is what the good stuff of hockey is all about. So you've got the three pigs who are playing hockey and 
Wolfie and his friends, Bear and Moose, show up. And obviously, Wolfie wants to eat the pigs. So it's tied into, you know, that traditional story of the three little pigs, but with a twist, because these are three Canadian pigs, Wolfie wants to eat some Canadian bacon. (laughs) And the pigs say, let's play a game of hockey. And if we lose, then you can eat us. I won't give it away, but it's about how do we get to the end now where the pigs and Wolfie and Bear and Moose are all sitting down and enjoying some poutine. It's, you know, rhyming, so it's really easy to read and kids just get into that repetition and that that rhythm. And yeah, it's an awesome book. So to get B. Kwame to like hockey, you got to have a little bacon. A little bit. Hey, yeah. bacon will Whatever get me takes, wherever you need you me to be. To. <laughs> Thank you so much to both of you. B. Kwame is a writer, broadcaster, and mom to two little girls. And Bridget Raimundo is a CBC associate producer and a former children's bookseller. The titles they talked about today are on our website, cbc.ca slash the next chapter. Marie-Louise Gay has written or illustrated over 60 books for children. Her books have been inspired by her childhood and that of her own children. And as she says, her overheated imagination. She writes in French and English and began her career in the mid-80s. So many of her books, including her popular Stella and Sam series, have been read and loved by a few generations of children. Here is Marie-Louise Gay in Montreal answering the Proust questionnaire. Name your favorite writers. It's hard to name my favorite writers because throughout my life I've had favorite writers. Writers that their books hang out in my personal library and all of a sudden I catch their eye and I think, oh, I want to go back to that world. For a certain time, Edward Gorey and F. Muir were my favorite writers with their drawings becoming part of the writing, part of the landscape they created. If I were to go to more contemporary writers, I would go through a trio of women, Barbara Kingsolver, Anne Patchett, and Kate Atkinson. And these books I read and reread, and as I say, there's this feeling that comes over me when I see one of their books in my bookcase. I'm just drawn towards it. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? I guess I would like to get rid of the ongoing anxiety I have about things going wrong. I'd like to be more confident. Ordinarily, I look like a confident person. I look confident in my work. I've been writing and illustrating books for, I don't know, too many years, I guess, 30 or something. But I'm not at all. What are people going to think about it? I would like to stop worrying in general, but um, in my work. (laughs) What do you value most in your friends? What I value most in my friends is something that I was trying to translate in French. It's la qualité d'écoute. It is the quality of listening, the, the way that your friend listens to you. It's not only a one-way conversation and is not waiting to tell you another anecdote that will go with what you just said. Oh, well, this is what happened to me is listening and tries to ferret out why you are talking about something and what is it doing to you emotionally. On what occasions do you lie? I have a great, great tendency to exaggerate. I'm a writer, I have ideas, I think of stories, and 
even my kids are always saying, oh, I don't, we don't believe you because you always exaggerate so much. And so I guess you would say that if you exaggerate a lot, it's because you want to tell a good story. But I think it's also that you want to be more interesting. So I would say that I probably lie a lot. <laughs> I exaggerate a lot because then the story's good. Yeah, I'm a born liar. What is your greatest regret? I, I don't really believe in regrets because I think if you do that, you, you'll never go anywhere. You'll always, you'll always have that in your mind. You'll always carry a sadness around you if you think of your regrets. I think if, if I was to qualify some types of regrets, it would be the paths not taken, the parallel lives you could have lived. I, I went to study in the United States. I, went, I could have gone to study in San Francisco or in London. So how do you choose that? Well, now the regret is that I will never go study in, in London. It's just that there's so many choices. It's like taking one path or the other. So the regret is you can't do anything about it because it's done. What is your favorite occupation? I would guess since I've been doing it since the age of 16, and I'm not going to tell you how many years that makes, of drawing and painting, that's my favorite occupation. Uh, I could um, illustrate or paint uh, the images for a book that someone else wrote, but I would never let anybody paint images on my text. Where would you like to live? I would like to live where I am right now. I have traveled a lot and I've seen many, many places where I could imagine, oh, I could live here. But then if you work out the practicality of it, I realize that I can live in Montreal and also travel the world if I want to. I had a very nomadic childhood where my parents moved all the time. So when I came back to live in Montreal, uh, after these years of living all over Canada and everything, I wanted to stay here. What is your idea of perfect happiness? It is seeing my children, my, my two sons and my grandchildren, having lives that they like, that they are happy in, and that makes me happy. That's it. What is your greatest extravagance? My greatest extravagance would, I think, be traveling. For me, it is a source of inspiration to be able to leave your home and go and live somewhere else and, and discover and explore. It's just so fascinating. And I can look at my books and say, ah, yes, I did this book when I was in this place. And I can see by the colors that are in the book that they were influenced by the place I was in. So traveling for me is an extravagance, but it also is absolutely necessary. What is your greatest achievement? My children, uh, my grandchildren, and the work that I've done for children, creating images that will stay in their minds, opening up uh, the world to children through my work. That is also part of the achievement. That was Marie-Louise Gay, the Montreal author and illustrator, answering the Proust questionnaire. Her latest book is Hopscotch.
And that is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. And my thanks this week to Emily Chiarvesio and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, the one-of-a-kind cartoonist and graphic novelist, Seth. He's used pieces of his life in his work, and I'll talk to him about the latest piece he recalls in book number 24 of his Palookaville series. And Rick Mercer answers the Proust questionnaire. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.